Luke 4. Go to Luke 4. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. One of the things we looked at from last week is this, that no matter your age, fresh baked cookies and a parent telling you no or wait never goes away, right? No matter what age you are, parents turn into bosses or police officers uh, or coaches or some other authority figure and cookies turn into all kinds of different things, but that's a fact of life that never goes away. Let me show you a scripture that's powerful for handling temptation. Second Peter chapter 1 says this, His divine power, think about this word, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's a good sentence. That's a good promise right there. Through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises So that through them, two things can happen. One, you may participate in the divine nature. It's the promised Holy Spirit in us. And number two, you can escape the corruption in the world caused by your evil desires. Is that not a great verse to to think about in light of last week, looking at Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and dealing with our temptations that we have? I heard someone say this, that you worship your way into habitual sin. That is, you take a good thing, you make it a God thing, or an ultimate thing, or a ruling thing, and eventually an enslaving thing. The way out of habitual sin is you worship your way out of habitual sin. So we worship our way into habitual sin. The way to get out of it is you worship your way out of it. You put your eyes on God. God is not interested in killing your desires. Look at me for a minute, please. God is not interested in killing your desires. That is a false narrative that people take away from church sometimes. Here's what God wants to do. He wants to take your tiny, fit-in-your-hand, rotting apple desires, and He wants to give you universe-expanding, mind-blowing, more-than-you-can-ask-or-think desires. That's what He wants you to do. He doesn't want to shrink your desires. He actually wants to expand them. He wants to put them on things that actually fulfill. Today is part two of a double header that we might look at sort of the the testing of Jesus. So number one is, we, we looked at this last week, part one of the double header was last week, the temptation, Jesus in the wilderness. The second test he's going to face today is rejection at home. Two different kinds of things that go on uh, as, as a Christian. Temptation from the devil in the wilderness, rejection from family and friends uh, at home. You could add one more test. This is all in the heels of public success. Jesus gets baptized and the Trinity shows up at his inauguration ceremony in this really, really powerful way. Right? The Spirit descends as a dove. Jesus the Son is there. God the Father is speaking. So we see God in three persons there and present in, in fellowship in a unique way. Frankly, triumph is its own kind of test. Some of you have known this. Some of the hardest times of remaining dependent on God has been in, in your greatest success. Public acknowledgement. If you're new here, uh, you have landed with us in the midst of a series going through the Gospel of Luke. We're calling it the good doctor. That's Jesus. Jesus is the good doctor. And he offers hopeful healing for all. That tagline there is specific to Luke. Luke is the most universal of the four Gospels. 
He's writing to show that God's blessing and favor and work has always been for all nations. If you aren't Jewish here this morning, this is exceptionally good news because that's most of us in this room. If you're non-Jewish, you're called a Gentile. So hopeful healing for all. God's love is universal. It's open and free to every nation. And not only every nation, but every station in life. Every rank of life. However you see yourself, high, low, or medium. Of course, doctor is sort of a subtle, tiny nod to the author. God uses specific individual personalities to tell the story. And Luke was a family physician. So, a little nod to to Luke there. I want to show you two key verses that really unlock uh, sort of understanding what is being communicated about Jesus in this gospel that's, that's very specific to Luke. Number one is this. Good refers to his character. Who is this Jesus who was from Nazareth? Who, who was he? He was, he was good. And when we write that he was good, I'm thinking of this verse in Luke that we're going to get to in chapter 18. Where Jesus answers and says this. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You notice what he does with this. He doesn't deny that he's good. He's just putting a question back on them. Why are you calling me good? There is one who is good. You know what Luke is confirming in this passage? That Jesus is in fact God. What I want you to look for as you read and meditate and reread and meditate some more and hear it on Sunday mornings and just let your imagination soak in the story of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke, I want you to see the goodness of Jesus. It's not just that he's good on his good days and says some good things. It's that he embodies goodness. It emanates from who he is. It spills out on everyone he bumps into because he is God in a body. Uh, second verse I want you to look at is Luke 19, which refers to his work. The first one looks at who he is. The second one looks at what he does. Jesus' own mouth says this, For the Son of Man, that's one of his favorite references to himself, came to seek and save the lost. Luke is saying, this is God. And he's on a rescue mission to seek out sinners. To seek out those who don't even know they're lost. Here's the shockingly good news that Jesus preaches and embodies. We don't go to the doctor. The doctor comes to us. We don't even know we're sick. We wouldn't even do that. Now, think about some medical things for a second. Just like a surgeon, if you don't understand what's happening, and you see a surgeon rip open a chest cavity and start digging around on a loved one of yours. That seems counterintuitive unless you're the surgeon. Unless that person knows what he's doing, has an understanding of what it is, and can can actually rehab the heart, bring the heart back to life from the inside out. That's what Jesus is doing. He actually does some things and says some things. We're going to see it in our passage today that seem counterintuitive. That's not very nice, Jesus. Is that really good, Jesus, that you're doing that? You're cutting someone's chest open. Is that the right thing to do? Like any doctor you have ever visited, going to a doctor requires faith. You are entrusting yourself to the care of a doctor. Here, take these little pills for a couple of weeks every day. Okay, I guess I will. Hey, we need to cut you open and do some stuff inside your body. Sign here. You might die. 
Okay, I guess I'll do it. We, we display faith. We, we, let, we put our lives in the hands of doctors all the time. So some, some people say, just I have this huge hurdle. I cannot entrust myself to someone else. I say you do it all the time. Whether it's a server in a restaurant handing you food that you have no idea where that food came from. You're about to ingest this stuff. To a doctor that says, sign here, you might die. We do this all the time. Here's this great news. Um, the good doctor is alive and well today. And he is still seeking and saving the lost. He's still on his rescue mission. Here's what's amazing. Once he begins treatment on you, he doesn't leave your side. He remains in caring service of you. We're going to look this morning at one of my favorite sort of encounters of Jesus. It's a, it's a very powerful picture, and it's found in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. I'm just going to start to read uh, just to set some context. It says, And Jesus returned, catch this, in the power of the Spirit. Remember, before the temptation, he was filled by the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. He's tempted in the wilderness. And now he's in the power of the Spirit. To Galilee. And a report about him went out through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. If you track the popularity of Jesus, it's sort of an ebb and flow to it, isn't it? Wherever he goes. He is riding a wave of popularity right now. Now Jesus is going to head to his hometown. And we're going to look at not only his text, but his sermon. And then sort of the chatter that happens after a sermon. Sometimes driving home uh, Sunday mornings when I would come home from church, my family would talk about the sermon, would talk about things. There's always some after chatter that can go on. Verse 16 says this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Capture that moment. Pregnant pause. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? We're going to see this this morning, that preacher Jesus is cheered. Um, So far, so good. This is the hometown boy returns. He's had success elsewhere. News has reached this little sort of podunk, out-of-the-way area of Israel. Jesus is in the synagogue. We've got ourselves a celebrity. Let's let him do the reading and teaching this morning. 
Here's some quick explanation because our church runs a little different than a Jewish synagogue. You would stand up to read the scripture and then you would sit down along with everyone else to sit and explain it or teach it. So when it says he read it and sat down, he didn't read the scripture and then come and sit like this and then everyone was looking at him. That's not how it went. So when he sat down, he's sitting down and people are waiting to say, what is he going to say about this? You can almost get a sense that they view hometown Jesus, he's probably in his early 30s right now, as this little boy. Because when you grow up somewhere, there's a certain sense that the, the village people, you know, they had him in Sunday school, right? They, they saw him at the market. They bumped shoulders with him as a little pipsqueak kid. They knew his dad. So it's almost like you get a sense that they're, they're seeing him as this, as this little kid. Um, I grew up at Los Gatos Christian Church, now called Venture Church. And I was a junior high pastor there for a couple of years, full time. And I remember very clearly the first time I preached in front of the whole church at Las Gatos Christian Church. First of all, I was used to like a music stand or something in junior high ministry. We just, you know, leaned our Bible on a rock, whatever. And they had like a Cadillac of, of pulpits. It was like this big. You know, and I was standing behind it. And I sort of had to overcome this wave of thinking that I was a little kid wearing a giant suit, you know, behind a pulpit. And I just got into teaching and I taught the message and I had, I had a different responses, but I remember a couple that were really clear. One that came up and you almost, he almost saw his hand like he wanted to come and pinch my cheek. He, he didn't quite, but he was like, it was kind of like, local boy done good. That was amazing. I didn't even know you could teach like that. Wow. And you could just tell, he saw me as a seven-year-old. And he just couldn't believe I knew big words and couldn't believe that I could, you know, speak the words of God and, and, and preach. And that's because I grew up in that church. People had seen me in that church. People had seen me do kid-like things in that church. I was a junior higher and a high schooler and a, and a college student. And here I was teaching in my home church. So there's a certain sense that people, you know, sort of don't grow with you. And they just sort of leave you locked in, in, a, in a certain place. And so that's a little bit of what you get the sense of, of Jesus. Like, wow, they're kind of in awe of him. The, the passage that he reads in Isaiah is, is a prophecy. And from this prophecy, anointed simply means someone who's sent, like on a mission. But there, the, 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 the theology that grew out of this is that there would come an anointed one, a Messiah, a Savior, all capital letters that say, this is the Savior to, to rescue all of us. This is the prophet to end all prophets, and, and it would set up this kingdom. And so there was, a, there was an expectation that came from it. And in fact, this year of the Lord's favor would be the year when this Messiah, this anointed one, this Savior, was going to be revealed. Now, we don't really know that this was the entirety of Jesus' sermon. I mean, if it was, it, it, it was pretty effective and powerful, just as short as it is. It's probably that he said some things, but this is what got recorded. But think about this. He says, today, not long ago in a dusty scroll that we pull out and read record of uh, in years past, but right here, he says, this scripture 
this announcement of God's salvation, this promise of things to come, this what we're talking about, has been fulfilled. That is, this is coming true. It is coming to completion. And then he says this, in your hearing. That is, this is being fulfilled as I'm speaking and you're receiving the words on your ears. Right now. Right here. In English, nine little words that say so much. And it says that they spoke well of him, right? All over Galilee, there's, there's positive things. And they say, wow, what gracious words. There's one translation that I think gets the, the shift. Oftentimes in a, in, a, in a movie, we have music that sort of turns. You're like, oh, minor key, something weird's going on right here. I should pay attention. It says they spoke gracious words. One translation says, but they also said, isn't this Joseph's son? And, and I, think, I think that's actually where the, the, the text kind of turns. It's so common for people to speak well of Jesus and like the words of Jesus to a point. Let me take a really quick aside to look at Jesus' teaching. All through the Gospel of Luke, you're going to see Jesus' teaching and the importance of him as a teacher or preacher. And if you're taking notes, you can jot these things down. There's about seven or eight of them. Write small because there's more coming. But let me just say this and kind of, kind of watch for this as we go through the Gospel of Luke. There's probably more. These are just ones that kind of came to me. Number one, Jesus' teaching is often marked by surprise. Isn't this Joseph's son? There's a surprise to it. There's also an authority to it. Mark 1.22, it says, And they were astonished, there's the surprise, at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Number three is uniqueness. Matthew records in, in chapter 7. It says, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for his teaching uh, them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. So Mark and Matthew both record that's different. It also is otherworldly in its origin. John chapter 7 says this, the Jews therefore marveled. There's that astonishment again. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus bore witness to the fact that his was not an earthly origin. It's also marked by controversy. If this were boxing, there'd constantly be a split decision on Jesus. Did he win or lose? Are we for him and going to follow him? Or do we hate him and we should kill him? It seems like everywhere he goes, he sort of creates controversy. Here's a passage that shows both the, the wisdom and the graciousness that people had towards him and the controversy. Mark chapter 6. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where do you get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So again, even when they see the wisdom, there's offense taken. Here's another thing that marks his teaching is simplicity. Jesus is not overly intellectual. He's not overly uh, theological in the sense of confusing. He spoke in the common tongue. He used very ordinary illustrations when speaking of the most glorious realities that you can imagine. He took the treasures of God 
the cookie jar, so to speak, and he put it on the lowest shelf. Much to the great offense, he could deal with the, the sharpest minds of the day. The scribes and Pharisees and all the learned and all of that. In fact, that's what had people so confused. Here's another thing that marks his teaching is that it was unconfined. He didn't just teach at church. Jesus wasn't just a teacher and preacher when he went to synagogue. He taught on the way. He taught through the rhythms of life. He constantly had these teachable moments. Walking through a field, having a meal, going to a wedding, just the regular stuff of life. He had all these teachable moments. Great for parents, great for grandparents, great for people who live with uh, younger people and just realizing there's all kinds of ways to talk about the glories of the kingdom throughout the week. But here's what I want you to catch. It's really popular now to just blow up the church. And here's the, here's the thing. Not only did he teach outside of church, but watch this. He taught inside of church. He didn't say the institutional structures are so jacked up, we just shouldn't do them anymore. He went to the institutional structure of synagogue and taught there. It wasn't very well received, but it was a both and. And so he didn't just teach at church, but he also did teach at church. Lastly, let me show you this. His teaching was very concrete. Jesus did not separate the needs of life in this, uh, uh, the, the needs of this life and the needs of the next life. The concerns there are here, and the concerns here are there, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is constantly meeting the physical needs of people while speaking to and meeting their spiritual needs of people. This opening sermon highlights this. Some people try to take the categories of this sermon. Those who are poor, those who are oppressed, those who are a captive. And what they try to do is they try to turn Jesus into their own social justice superhero. And what they do is they ignore the spiritual altogether. And they hurl insults at the church, sometimes rightfully received, that the church doesn't stand beside the lonely. They forget the forgotten just as much as people who don't have the Spirit of God. But they do this by excluding the commands of Jesus to be perfectly holy. To be imitators of God. To deal with your own sin through repentance, renouncement, and following of Jesus. That's one camp. Social justice hero Jesus. Here's the other camp. The other camp tries to completely spiritualize what Jesus just talked about. Who are the poor? Well, that's poor in spirit. They need the gospel. Who are those enslaved? Those are enslaved to sin. They need to be set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. Right? And so what they do is they completely spiritualize to the total and complete neglect of the materially poor in our culture. Of the actual enslaved people in our culture. And on and on with those categories. They would say this, Jesus came to teach a path to God and he didn't leave a social justice institution. He left a spiritual institution. Here's what I would say. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't clarify in this instance what exactly he was talking about. Was he talking just in a spiritual way? Was he talking just in a physical way? He doesn't say. But if you look at the life of Jesus which is the continuing sermon, right? It's the continuing teaching. What does he do? 
Next week, we're going to look at Jesus setting people free from demonics and demonic activity. The following week, we're going to see people being set free and healed from physical diseases. What we see in the life of Jesus is never this separation of spiritual and physical. What did he do? He, he, he was a teacher. He was a preacher. And most often he told stories. Consider the story of the Good Samaritan. Consider the story in Matthew 25 of the sheep and the goats. He says, as often as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Who was he talking about? He said, go and feed people. Go and clothe people. Go and visit people who are in prison. Find the face of Jesus in the discarded and forgotten in our city. You want to be where Jesus is? We sing this. I just want to be where you are, Jesus. And that's a bold prayer. Because you follow Jesus, you follow him into demonic, dark places. You follow him into dark, dank prisons. You follow him into very difficult, cold, lonely, hurtful places. Jesus' feet led him to the poor to proclaim good news. His power unlocked chains of those held by demonic forces. His spit and his hands opened the eyes of people who were physically blind. And in the meantime, opened their spiritual eyes. His strong carpenter's biceps turned over tables to stop people who were oppressing worshipers at church. Jesus cares about the physical and the spiritual. His brother James would bring the physical and spiritual together. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let me just say, if you're new here, relatively new, Neighborhood Bible Church, by God's grace, has this tradition as long as it is old. We're about 12 years old as a church. Of raising up people to go to the hidden subcultures near and far. And it's with a purpose of sharing, not just the gospel, but physically. We currently have the Humphreys and Collins family who, through foster care, are just moving toward those families that need extra support and love and care right now. When I think about Christine Barber and Megan Routon and Josh Barrow, they've all moved into some dark places specifically to bring the light of Jesus. I just was talking with Josh and Kayla last weekend. Although he's the youth pastor, you know what he spends most of his time doing? He's working in the kitchen. He's meeting the physical daily needs of people who have growling stomachs. The other servants and the homeless people in the Tenderloin District. Think about the Hurleys. I was on the phone with Jonathan yesterday. The Hurleys moved from our midst about a year and a half ago. You know why they moved? Because the girls that God had called them to adopt into their family couldn't leave Mexico. So they left here to bring their family to Mexico. That's where they live. Here we are doing this sort of benevolence thing uh, for a person in Tijuana right now. And we're working with Jonathan and his church and someone, a member from our congregation. And God's just lining this whole thing up. It's incredible. I told Jonathan at the end of our phone call yesterday, I said, man, I, 
I didn't think after you left we would continue to do so much ministry together. These are just sort of the most visible. There's all kinds of work that goes on right here that doesn't have a specific name, doesn't have a specific sort of marker to it. But let me say this. There are some needs right now in our midst that would be able to wrap around those God has called to stretch a little bit further in faith. Foster the Bay's model is this, that as one person steps up to be a foster family, that their church would ensure that they're wrapped with four support friends who link arms with that foster family and say, we are with you through thick or thin in this. We will meet the tangible needs of meals. We will hang on to your other kiddos while you're going to a court-appointed visit. Uh, We will pray for you and text you the moment you're going to a visitation with birth mom or dad. That's sort of a formal model. Think about this. Every time you support friend do that for your foster family, you are, you are planting a seed in another family that's here that says, is our church just excited for five minutes when someone steps out in faith and does this great thing, they lay hands and pray? Or are they with us uh, for the long haul in this? I can tell you some people who are currently fostering and adopting in our church did it because they saw other people in our church well-supported. That's the same that's true with some of our young people who are no longer in our midst, praise God, because they followed God's call to go. Let me move on. Jesus is not only cheered, he's then jeered. Verse 22. And they said, maybe it's but they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at... Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Here's what Jesus does. He reads the text. He gives the sermon. And then what he sees is this. There is a response of pride and unbelief. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. That's Jesus' pattern all through his life. So he senses the unbelief and the pride that's coming his way. And so he continues to speak truth, but he points light on their own hearts. He sheds light on what they're going to do. Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's true, but first it hides what, what is there. Many today are super unimpressed by Jesus. They hear the story of Jesus, they hear songs sung about his blood, his sacrifice, his rising again. They remain, they remain completely unmoved. What is that? Could just be familiarity hides what's gloriously true in front of you. It's so common. It's so familiar that we just think in ourselves, yeah, 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 we, we've got that. What's next? Isn't it like the human heart to just look at what's next? I mean, every kid goes through this at Christmas time. Every toy you've ever gotten. I mean, the build-up towards, I can't wait to get that. You get it five minutes later. Maybe it's five days, maybe it's five weeks, maybe it's actually five minutes. What's next? Here's the adult version. 
Every relationship you have ever entered into is like every kid at Christmas with their toys. Familiarity begins to hide the glory that's right in front of you. I mean, young couples, they can't wait to get married. 72 days, 86 hours, whatever. Like, they're just like, like the countdown, the build-up. They get married. And at some point, the glorious picture of what that is has to be fought for and re-energized because law of entropy, things just wind down. So familiarity hides glory that is there. That's what's going on. That's the result of it. Right in plain sight is something wonderful, but it's hidden. But it moves on to contempt. When Jesus does reveal his glory, he's reviled. That's because prophets, he just gives this general principle. Prophets are accepted and honored. Oh, that's right, accepted at home. That's where they revile you and try to kill you. That's the place where they don't receive it. He brings up this proverb, good doctor, heal yourself. You guys know this, but when you grow up in a place, you kind of speak the language. You can already know at Thanksgiving where the conversation is going to go. Aunt so-and-so is going to bring up politics. Uncle Joe is going to rebuttal with this. And that. You, can, you, can just, you can just imagine how it goes. You know the phrases really well. This is Jesus just preempting, knowing kind of where their mind is already going. In a few short years, Jesus is going to hear something awfully close to, Hey, good doctor, why don't you heal yourself? He's on the cross. His enemies say this. He saved others. Let's see him save himself if he is, in fact, the chosen one of God. It's predictable. Jesus turns to their own Jewish history and sort of levels this critique by way of analogy. Verses 25 and 26 reminds them of widows in Elijah's day that God sent them to Sidon. And then in verse 27, he reminds them of lepers in Elisha's day. That's Elijah's, uh, the, the next prophet in line, that God sent them to a Syrian. Here's the point. There were plenty of widows and lepers in Israel. God passed over the chosen people to those unclean, not God-fearing, not law-possessing Gentiles and worked His saving power there. Israel rejected the help of God. Gentiles accepted it. This is what sent the church people over the edge. Right? So what do they do? They act on it. (laughs) They go take Jesus to throw him over the edge. They're whipped into a frenzy. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I want to wrap up by giving you some ways to be like Jesus. And what I want to tell you is this. Central to interpreting the Bible is this. This passage is about Jesus. We start there. Just like with with his temptation. Is it true that we should know the scripture and combat uh, the temptations of Satan with the word of God? Absolutely. But we are not Jesus. 
We don't know the word like Jesus. We don't spar with the wiles of, of the devil like Jesus. The primary lesson from last week in the temptation is this. Run for cover. Get under your identity. Run to the rock and fortress that is your identity in Jesus Christ. And now, from that position, use the word of God to combat lies that, that come at you. If we read this passage and we think we become, church, we're the, we're the anointed. We're to go set the captives free and, and, and all these things. What happens is we make this about us and not primarily about Jesus. Now, the fact that it is about Jesus, what I want to do is draw some inference and say, here are ways followers of Jesus to follow Jesus. Okay? Hebrews 12, 1-2 says this. Well, starting in verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. You want to see the heart of God? You want to see the priorities of God? You want to see the business of God? Look at Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. As a follower of Jesus, follow Jesus. So here's number one. Follow Jesus. I follow the Spirit to church. Make a practice of worshiping at church. As was his custom. Jesus went to synagogue. He went to the meeting place of worshipers of God. You may say, but my church is really bad. There's a crazy, boring speaker. The music isn't to my liking. The chairs aren't angled. It's too bright. It's too dark. It's too hot. It's too cold. They don't serve porridge. Whatever. Let me tell you this. Until they try to kill you for doing a public scripture reading, your church isn't as bad as Jesus' home church. Get to church. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Be led by the Holy Spirit. And go worship with God's people. Number two. Say what God tells you to say, even if your friends and family reject you. Brace for it. Jesus was rejected by those who should have been his closest allies. This is part of what it means to worship God and God alone. Remember his rebuttal to Satan? I'm supposed to worship God and God alone. Some people, maybe in this room, your idol is your family. Your idol is your parents. Your idol, I fought so hard to get in my good graces of daddy. Finally said, I'm proud of you. What would it do if I threw all this Jesus nonsense at him or lived in such a way? For some in the room, it's, man, I've got a good thing going here in my family, and that has become your idol. Worship God alone. Familiarity breeds contempt. It takes real faith to proclaim this to family and friends. I'll tell you what, I grew immensely, personally. As those who I thought should be my dearest allies became some of my most ardent, outspoken enemies of my faith. Friends I had grown up with, they watched my life change. Family members, are you sure you want to go after that career? Can't you be a Jesus guy without making it a career? All kinds of stuff. Over and over, the the test was put before me. Am I going to keep my eyes on Jesus and keep walking straight ahead? Or am I going to let these voices derail me? Number three. If you preach like Jesus, then you will preach Jesus. When you preach Jesus, this will stir all kinds of reaction. Remain faithful even in the face of derision and even violence. 
Here's what I would say to hold really loosely to the results of it. Don't demand to see the results of it. Hold loosely to it. Just be faithful. Week after week, I stand up here and I try to faithfully teach the word of God. If I lived for results, I would live for the attaboys at the end of the service. I would, I would see some of you nodding. I'm like, okay, this is good. I'm going to stay right here. And I would just be steered by the opinions of people. You know what's awesome? You guys have seen me long enough. Some of you look bored, bored as can be some of the times. Some of you literally nod regularly. Some of you nod off in the middle of speaking. I'm close enough. I can see it. I, you just faithfully preach it. And you say, God, you, if you would ever be so kind and gracious to, before I die, let me know that there was some fruit. That's great. I hold no rights to that. I'm your servant. I'm just going to call. I, I'm just going to do what I, what I do. Commit to not withholding the truth in the name of niceness, nor blasting people in the name of boldness. Let me say that again because some of you fall into one of these camps really strongly. Commit to not withhold the truth in the name of niceness, nor to blast people in the name of boldness. Stay in the Gospels to figure out how to speak to different kinds of people. The worst of sinners, whatever that means, to the most self-righteous amongst us. Jesus talked to them all with grace and truth. Here's number four. Find ways to carry on his work of proclaiming good news. This year of the Lord's favor to the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. Here's what I would say. Open your mouth. Use your mouth. Faith comes by hearing. But also use your body. That is, let your biceps and your feet and your ears and your arms and everything about you. Just throw your soul in while you're at it. Bring everything you are to carrying on this work of proclaiming God. This is his first sermon. He would later say, as we say, that as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Number five is to share. If God has given you any good gift, they are meant to be received without guilt received with gratitude, and shared freely. Acts 13 says this, For so the Lord God commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What's the best gift you can bring to a dying person? Life. Here's a convicting statement. I I aim it at myself first. I've been sitting with this since about Tuesday. Those who withhold... It, life, the gospel, the good news, are not believers in the remedy, or they carry contempt contempt for the dying, or are too blinded by their own sin and selfishness to take action. Let me read that again. I was trying to get my head around why don't we why don't I open my mouth to everyone I see? Why am I not more bold? Why am I not um, more sharing? Those who withhold it, life, are not believers in the remedy or carry contempt for those dying or are too blinded by their own sin and selfishness to take action. You know what that led me on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and every time I reviewed my notes? God, help me. Church, I say it for us. God, help us. We need a fresh feeling of concern for people right in our proximity every day. God, help us. 
We just sang this, move us into action. We don't need to talk about this, do more classes on it, pray about it. Move us into action. That leads us to number six. Number six, who's running this slideshow? It's me, I'm kidding. (laughs) Number six is go. Jesus left his home to come to us. He didn't wait for the lost to go to the seeker. Here's the picture. The doctor doesn't sit in the lobby of the hospital with great coffee and giant welcome signs. (whistles) Can't wait to welcome the sick. The doctor comes to us. Church, every time we dismiss out of here, you're dismissed into places that you can go individually that we can't go collectively. So go. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Two more, and with that, let me bring the band up right now. Number seven is this. The rejection of some is salvation to others. What sends the people of Jesus into crazy town mode? It's when he brings up from their history a dark period where they didn't trust God. And he called them on it and said, God passed them over and Gentiles received the help God was offering. In Romans eleven seventeen, we went through this when we walked through Romans, that Gentiles were grafted in to this tree because Israel was broken off. Sometimes that person you're in a public dispute with or at a family table and they're just reviling you and you're trying to love well in the face of rejection, sometimes that person isn't the open person. You know who's the open person? It's the person right here witnessing you have love for that person even in the midst of some really intense personal attack. Their heart gets opened up. It says, man, I saw something in how you carried yourself that looks really attractive. Here's the last one. I threw this one in this morning. Don't kill God when his message counters you. Jesus opens his mouth. Oh, what graciousness. This is being fulfilled right now. I'm the anointed one. We're going to kill you. Let's be a church that doesn't despise the word of God, but readily welcomes it. Part of God's words will go down like honey, and you'll be like, oh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to make that a devotional. I'm going to Instagram it. That's good. And then some of God's words sours in your stomach. What did he just say? What did the preacher just say? What did that passage say? That can't mean that. If God's word never confronts you, you're worshiping a God made in your own image. It's as simple as that. Let's be a church that humbly, meekly receives the word and just does what it says. Would you pray with me? God, I'm grateful that I couldn't possibly know the condition of the heart, souls, minds, circumstances of everyone in this room. We rest and lean on the Holy Spirit to highlight, to teach, to call to remembrance, to convict, to encourage, and everything in between, individuals and couples and families, that as you're stirring truth, as you're shining light on our lives and circumstances and actions, God, help us to be quick to repent. 
Help us to be quick to simply respond in obedience. God, I pray for our groups that will meet all over San Jose this coming week as we gather and fellowship around the Word, as we look to take this passage and massage it into our life and our imagination. God, help us to go and to share, to just receive what you're telling us to, to admit our fault, to admit our lack of care, to admit our lack of boldness. God, fill us up and send us out. What else are we going to live our life for? What else are we going to give ourselves to in the few short years that we have? God, continue to speak as we close with this song. Amen.